July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery. Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles and watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research and I know there's so much more to the story that's never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thrasher, for many years. And so when Rick asked me to help him bring the behind the scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into 12 seasons. The episodes in season one tell the story of the first trip in 1989. Season two deals with the next expedition in 1991 and so on. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. Hi Rick. At the end of the last episode, you and the team were about to take off from Honolulu for the 2,000 mile flight to Canton Island, where you planned to investigate the possibility that an engine from Amelia Earhart's Lockheed Electra was sitting in a dump on the abandoned airfield. That must have been really exciting. Well, yeah, it was, because we were accustomed to doing expeditions on ships. And, you know, it takes five days yeah. at least to get to where you're going. And now, finally, we've got an airplane. <laughs> we're we're going to, it's going to be a few hours. And, um, of course, we're going to have to stop and refuel at Palmyra Island, where there was a crushed coral airstrip built during World War II. There had been no fuel stored there, so we had to pre-position fuel in 55-gallon drums. Right. And then we're going to have to pump this into the Gulfstream 1 twin turboprop ah. airplane we chartered. But yeah, that was, it was great. You know, we're going to fly on down to Canton and, uh, <laughs> and uh, check out this possibility that this oh and bruce the guy who told us the story is with us oh he's, he's gonna take us to the dump and um. show us he's gonna walk up and there's here's the engine right here and we said well that was easy <laughs> and, and how many and, years ago was that well thing? it had been a while he was there in 1971 uh. and this is 1998 uh. so okay so off we go. We head down there, and we we get to Palmyra, and we land, and in the trees beside the runway is a wrecked Lockheed Electra. Oh, 
That's yeah, a it, bad it, omen. It, it's not a, a Lockheed 10 like Earhart's. It was a somewhat later model, a, quite, a little bit bigger, a Lockheed Model 14. The same type that was used by the military in early World War II as the Hudson bomber. Anyway, so a Lockheed 14. The story was that a group of ham radio enthusiasts had decided that they were going to do what's called a DX expedition, where you go to some very remote place and talk to a bunch of people from there, and everybody gets this little card that, oh, right. I, I, you know, uh. it, it's what they do. And they chartered this Lockheed 14 to take them to Palmyra. Well, something went wrong. I have no idea what. But the pilot ground looped the airplane. Okay. And I don't know if it happened on arrival or on takeoff. Was it recent? A recent wreck? No, no. It, it had been like 15, 20 years. Oh, no. Since this had happened. So this is an old wreck sitting oh, no. over there in the palm trees. <laughs> But, and it wasn't all that badly wrecked. It didn't burn or anything. Nobody was hurt. Uh, but they had to get somebody to come get them, probably with a boat. <laughs> but it, yeah, it was a little bit ominous. Still yes, really. Oh, it's <laughs> a wrecked airplane right here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They brought out the fuel and we pumped the fuel into the airplane. Now, we knew going in that we were going to be very heavy going out of Palmyra because we had to leave with enough fuel to fly from there to Canton. It's about a thousand miles. You know, Palmyra was halfway. It's a 2,000 mile trip. Palmyra is about a thousand miles out from Hawaii. We were going to refuel and have to go to Canton, do whatever we did, and then fly back to Palmyra. 2,000 miles. Well, that's about the max range of a Gulfstream 1. The trouble is the runway at Palmyra is 5,000 feet, but it's crushed coral. Mm. And you don't get the acceleration sure. in crushed coral that you do on pavement. Yeah, it makes sense. And the pilots knew all this. And so they were set up. We ended up having to do what's called water injection into the hot section of these turboprops oh. to keep them operating at the power levels we were going to need to go out of there. Wow. And it was one of these takeoffs where you rotate and take off on the numbers at the far end of the field. Oh my. And, like so but, no you know, room for error. No room for error, but we staggered out of there. It was we made it. <laughs> and off we <laughs> So we fly our 1000 miles down to uh, Canton and you know <sighs> The Pacific is a really big place. It really is. And you get that impression when you sail for five days without ever seeing anybody. Sure. But flying is the same way. You're out there and you go hour after hour and you're up high and you look and there's nothing, nothing but water. Mm. Then here's Canton on the horizon. You come up in good runway, over uh -huh. 6,000 feet long, still in good shape from World War II. Uh -huh. And um, we land. Now, there were arrangements made with the government of Kiribati that owns Canton that they would be notified by radio that we were going to arrive and the customs and immigration people would be there to examine our passports and stamp us in 
Wow. And it'll all be cool. This was all cleared with Tarawa and uh, huh. the Gilbert Islands and Kiribati. So we land, we taxi in crickets. Nothing. <laughs> Not a sign of anybody. And it's hot. You know, it, it's... What time of day was it when you arrived? Oh, God. It was like late in the afternoon. Oh, my, yeah. And we get out of the airplane and we're standing under the wing in the shade and we haven't been cleared. We, we can't go anywhere. We, right, right. What are we going to do here? After a little while, Toyota pickup truck with kind of a flatbed pulls up with a whole bunch of women and kids on it. Really? So no... They, Official, officials. No, no officials. Yeah, huh. These are just people that apparently saw the airplane coming in and came out to the airport to see what's going on. Nobody knew we were coming. The, oh the communication had not happened as we no. had been assured it would. And so they're just standing over there probably 100 yards away just looking at us. <laughs> And we're standing under the wing of this airplane, just looking at them. Well, my daughter Heather was with us as our photographer. She was probably 17 years old. Good photographer. In Honolulu, the night before we left, we had like a big dinner. And everybody got a lay. It's Hawaii. You get a lay. Okay. Heather was thrilled with that. And after the dinner, she gathered up all the lays and put them in a big plastic bag with some ice. Ah. And I thought, oh, what do you think? This is silly, but okay, go ahead. So she had these with her. And we're standing there looking at these people across the ramp. And Heather says, this is stupid. And she grabs her bag of lays and marches across the ramp. <laughs> to these women and kids and starts passing out lays. We're from America and we have come to... Suddenly it's all smiles and, oh, we'll have somebody go and get the people you need to process your... And they sent somebody to get the officials and they came. And I was so proud of my daughter. Really? Yeah, I mean, she had broken the ice. Sure, how perfect. Yeah. we got our passport stamped and everything. But by then it was late enough so that, okay, we, we need to get settled, you know, um, and find a place to, to stay. Well, there's no place to stay. The, when the Air Force left Canton Island, uh, the SAMTEC missile installation, they just walked away. They left things, uh, nothing was clear, cleaned up. Things had deteriorated. There was a there was a fire truck parked in the middle of a street with a footprint under it of just rust that had dripped off it. Aww. I mean, it, it hadn't moved. There's all these buildings that storms had knocked the roofs off. There were buildings full of bags of rat poison that the roof had collapsed. The bags had ruptured, oh. and there's just poison sitting around. Oh, and mess. there are a few Gilbertese Kiribati families there with kids and they're just running around. Uh-huh. There were uh, electrical pole transformers that had fallen 
laying on the ground, broken open, leeching PCBs. Right. Uh, just like, like a, the set for a movie by Armageddon or something. <laughs> yeah. So where are we going to stay here? I mean, there are no houses that you'd want to stay in. Did Look, many of the people there speak English? Yeah. Several of them spoke decent English. Mm -hmm. We decided we were going to sleep on the beach or on the lagoon beach. Huh. It's the tropics. Yeah, what the heck, you know. So we go out to the beach and we bed down on the lagoon beach. And about one in the morning, it starts to rain. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't going to work. Everybody's <laughs> got to get up. And we ended up going into a a fueling hangar, an abandoned wow. hangar that was still intact. It stank of jet fuel. Mm. But, but it was so dry. We, it was dry, and we set up in there. So the next morning, we get as dry as we can. It's still raining. Oh, oh. We're soaked. <laughs> We're going to be soaked. And let's, let's head on out to the, to the dump. Well, Bruce, lead the way. And so Bruce leaves the way, and out we go. We go across the runway and down the field. Here's the dump. Now, where'd you put that engine, Bruce? It was right over... Oh, this isn't what I remember. Oh. No, it's not what he remembered, because after he had left, one of the things the Air Force did do was bring bulldozers out, dig huge holes, and push all the stuff at the dump into the holes and oh, no. push coral rubble back over it. Uh, so anything that had been there was now buried under tons of coral. Oh, man. And we've got nothing to, to dig with on yes. that scale. Oh, gosh. I mean, we're, 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 we're stuck. Uh -huh. There's nothing we can do. So for the next day and a bit, we did what we could. We kind of surveyed the dump and said, oh, there's this and then, yeah, this looks like it was part of an airplane, but it was part of a C-119. It wasn't part of a Lockheed Electra. Well, a few things like that. The night before we left, we were invited to a party oh, by nice. the Caribous people. Turns out that they had some teenagers who were going to be going to school in Hawaii and there was a ship that was going to be arriving within a day or so to take them to Hawaii. Uh, so they're going to have a big going away party for the kids and as long as these Americans are there they may as well come to the party. Well this was great because this is very traditional Caribous stuff. The, they had what's called a manieba which is an open-sided pavilion with a thatched roof, mm -hmm. coconut thatch roof. It's most analogous to a Native American uh, council fire thing where oh. everybody has a particular place where they sit and the elders do this and other people do this. Oh, interesting. And so we were instructed to, you people are going to sit along this side over here and the food's laid out on card tables, really, oh. uh, along this side. And they had all kinds of stuff. They had um, local fish, mm. chicken, taro, breadfruit, 
Yeah. Did they of... have um, Coca-Cola? What kind of drinks did mm-hmm. they Oh, no, I don't remember any Coca-Cola. <laughs> oh, what did they have to drink? Kava, of course. Oh, yes. They had kava. There was also water. Once we were sitting there, and we were instructed how to sit. You sit cross-legged, and you don't speak unless it's your turn to speak. You don't volunteer. So all, all the Gilbertese Caribous people got up and lined up in front of us and sang to us. Really? Yeah. I think they were hymns, mostly. They were all in Gilbertese, so we sure. didn't understand them. But nice harmonies. Not, oh, very nice. After they were done, I said, oh, would it be permitted if we sang for you? Oh, oh yeah. I suppose, and I've forgotten now what we sang. Something we all knew. I wish I could remember. Christmas carols. Uh, and then once we had done that, we got up and we had to go through the food line before anybody else. They insisted Aww. on that. Wow. You try to be polite and take stuff that you're not even sure what it is, but you know, okay. I did pass on the chicken. Because it was quite clear that they liked their chicken rare. Oh, oh my. <laughs> well, it turns out that our, our doctor was braver than I was, and the rest of us were. And he ate the chicken and lived to regret it. Oh, no. Oh, God. Within, by the time we were on our way back, he was so sick. He ended up having to be put on IVs once we got oh, the whole gosh, really? Oh, that's horrible. It was... Oh, God. Well, salmonella is just yeah. really oh. bad. But there was a wonderful experience to mm-hmm. have this cultural really? exchange. But we hadn't found anything. There, <laughs> if there was an engine there, it was way down there. We headed home the next day. Years later, <laughs> we uh, managed to connect with one of the pilots that actually flew with Bruce back in, at that time. And he said, oh, we never went out to Gardner and slung any engine. That's crazy. We wouldn't do something like that. Really? No, oh that didn't happen. And then through him, we connected with somebody else that had a photograph of Bruce and a friend of his, shovels in hand, digging an engine out of the sand on Canton Island. Oh, no. And you know that it was Canton Island? Yeah, it was right there on Canton. It was, and and, and it it was an engine with a three-bladed prop, big radial, probably an R2800, uh, possibly from a a Vought Corsair or something like that. Nothing like the engine. So how does something like that happen? Was that a hoax? No, Bruce was being honest with us, but it's a classic example of what we've come to call Saipan syndrome, where you have an experience that causes something of an emotional reaction enough so that you really remember it. Oh, there was this cool engine and we dug it and we, I had it on a test stand by my shop and so forth. So you have that experience and then years later, you hear about a famous mystery and you say, engine? I I did something with an engine. Oh, and, and these people are quite sure that 
that she uh, landed at Gardner Island and Gardner Island was out there. I, yeah, you know, I think I remember, yeah, we, we, we saw that engine, we slung it back. Yeah, I mean, it, it just, uh, it, it's a false memory that just, it happens yeah. all the time. I mean, this is an extreme example, yeah. but the Japanese capture advocates uh, are, are full of stories like that, where oh, somebody, I was a young girl on Saipan in 1937, and I remember that uh, I once saw the Japanese soldiers had a white woman, and you know, come to think of it, I think they said her name was Amelia or oh. something like that. <laughs> and she had short hair and she dressed like a man. And that's right, there was a man with her and oh. you know, and on and on it goes. And there are dozens of these stories. Wow. So much so that we call it Saipan syndrome. It's, it's a well-known psychological thing that this is how false memories are Wow. created so we fill people in the blanks. people aren't lying they're not perpetrating a hoax and you really got to watch out for it wow and especially you, in this business oh in this business yeah. what you do is you take the stories and you say okay is it possible that this story could lead us to real evidence a document a photograph right an artifact something that corroborates and if possible, find other people, they might have similar stories. So there's, a, there's some bandwagon stuff that, that happens. So you gotta be careful about that too. These stories can, can get more credibility if people who never knew each other tell exactly the same story. Right. And the problem with the, the Saipan stories is all the stories are a little different. They come forward when somebody else comes forward. And right. there hasn't been one shred of hard evidence, document or photograph or artifact that corroborates any of it. It's, it's an occupational hazard in this yes, business. Yes, I guess. You, I mean, that's you, part of the investigation, you I guess. You've got to listen to the stories. You have to evaluate the stories, but you have to understand that the stories are not evidence. They can point you toward real evidence, but they're not, they're not evidence. Right, good point. After we got home, we continued to chase the Western Pacific High Commission files that we knew existed someplace mm. on the bones that we now oh, knew right. really had been found on Gardner Island yeah. in 1940. We had some telegrams that had been discovered in the archive in Tarawa, but that they kind of ended with the bones arriving in Fiji to be examined. And the one doctor who had examined them in Tarawa had decided that they were just the bones of an elderly Polynesian and had been laying out in the weather for 20 years. Uh. But we also knew that they were gonna conduct an investigation once the bones got to Fiji, and we really wanted to know what happened? Sure. We had asked the archivist at the Hanslop Park in England, this is 60 miles north of London, Her Majesty's Communication Center, <clears throat> where the archives of the Western Pacific High Commission were co-located with 
MI6, the British CIA. Oh, right. And it's a highly secure facility. So we communicated with them by fax, with the archives by fax, asking them, <clears throat> do you have a file on Amelia Earhart? They said, yeah, we have a file on Amelia Earhart. Well, can you send us the file? And they faxed us the file. And it was nothing to do with the bullets. It was a file dating from 1937 where Earhart's husband, George Putnam, had insisted that the British investigate a mysterious mythical island where psychics had told him that his wife was surviving. Oh. And they played along and they went and looked for this island which didn't exist. And, oh. But that's what the file was about. Oh. Didn't help us at all. We knew something was wrong. There should be a file, but there isn't a file. And I got to thinking, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Remember, the doctor in Tarawa, Lindsay Isaac, had told everybody that these are not the bones of Amelia Earhart, they're an elderly Polynesian. So, do you have a file about a skeleton? Well, we'll check. Well, sure enough. Oh, really? Come back. Yeah. WPHC file 4439, Gilbert and Ellis Islands Colony, skeleton, human, finding of on Gardner Island. Wow. Bingo. <laughs> All right. And it's thick. I mean, there's a lot there. Wow. And it's not just copies of telegrams and memoranda, but those British official files have minutes. In, wow. it, in the beginning of the file, there are lined pages where every time the file is given to someone, the date is noted, who gets the file. Oh, that's interesting. And any comments they have about the file. Hmm. And then when they give it back, and it goes back. And so that's how it worked. If you want to look at a file when it was in, in, there in Suva, Fiji in the 1940s, you went and you requested Checked the, it out like a you library. Check it out like a library. But it was all noted and all the comments. So there was all these comments and back and forth between various officials, including the doctor who did an analysis of the bones in ah. Fiji. Now, the doctor that they chose to do this was uh, Dr. David Hoodless. And he was the director of the medical school. But it wasn't a medical school like we think of a medical school. They didn't train doctors. What they trained were what were called native medical practitioners, kind of like EMTs, but a little better than that. These were local people from Fiji and, and some of the outer islands who would come and get this medical training and then be sent out to the outer islands as medical staff. So that's what the medical school did. And Hoodless, the doctor, was really more of an administrator hmm. than a practicing physician. He had a license to practice medicine, but he didn't That's not really, what he did. No, he, yeah. he was a school administrator and he taught some courses, including anatomy. So he knew about right, bones. Right. So the bones were given to Hoodless. 
And he evaluated them based on the materials available to him for examination of remains at the time, which didn't amount to much because the whole science of forensic anthropology just didn't exist yet. Right. And certainly not from a guy like Hoodless. But he did take measurements of several of the bones that had been found on Gardner Island. And he noted their length and circumference and other features. And the skull, and he noted the, the width and the breadth the length and breadth of the skull and the eye orbits, the eye sockets, and, ah. and noted all these things down. And then he applied what was known as Pearson's formula, which was available at that time. It was a mathematical formula where you determined age, gender, and ethnicity. Really? His conclusion was these bones are definitely male, and they are the bones of a European or possibly mixed race person, about 55 years old, standing about five feet, five inches tall. And this is not no. Amelia Earhart. No. Now, there was no mention of whether they might be Fred Noonan's bones. Oh, huh. Because. Because in 1941, when Hoodless is doing this, all these guys in Fiji know is what was in the papers back in 1937, which all focused on Amelia Earhart. They didn't even know there was a man with her. They didn't know about Fred Noonan. Hmm. So they never even considered whether this was Fred Noonan. If they had known anything about Fred Noonan, they'd know that, oh, he was well over five, five foot five. But they didn't. So the word that went up to the high commissioner was these are not the bones of Amelia Earhart. Well that was good news to Sir Harry Luke the high commissioner because he didn't want to have to get the Americans involved in all of this because it's 1941 things are really tense between the United States and Great Britain over how much assistance the U.S. is going to provide. Um, Britain stands alone against the Third Reich and you know, things are really tense. And if he gets the Americans involved, the media, American media, are going to be all over him. And if he says anything wrong, he's going to get in all kinds of trouble. So, okay, it's not Amelia Earhart. I don't have to call the Americans. Good. End of story. And they didn't even officially close the file. They just said, all right, that's enough. And the file just went into the stack of all the other files that the WPHC had. Very much like the uh, Lost Ark of the Covenant in the last scenes of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It gets into this warehouse and it disappears <laughs> into the hole. It wasn't hidden. It was just lost in the pile of other stuff. And, the whole, and only about a half dozen people ever even knew about this. They wow. kept a very tight lid on it. And the whole incident kind of disappeared. But now we had the file. We got the um, archives to fax us the, the doctor's report. And we learned all this stuff. We said, oh my God, we've got measurements of these bones. 
and maybe the bones are still there someplace in probably in Fiji because the archive doesn't have any bones uh. maybe maybe they're in Fiji so we've got to put together an expedition to Fiji <laughs> to see if we can find those bones and in the meantime we've got to have some really good forensic anthropologists look at these measurements we have right and find out if they agree with Dr. Hoodless that this is a definitely a male of um, European or mixed race descent. Well, fortunately, we had a really top-notch forensic anthropologist on our team. Oh, really? Dr. Karen Burns, Car Burns, world-renowned. I mean, she wow. she was one of these people that the U.S. government sends down to uh, South America or out to the Middle East to evaluate mass graves. And, oh, and wow. Were these people, how were these people killed? And, uh, Carr was a beautiful person and a million laughs. But don't get her talking shop over dinner because <laughs> you don't want to hear. <laughs> she had this wonderful way of speaking so casually about stuff that would just curl your hair. Uh. <laughs> anyway, she was the perfect person to address this issue. Yeah. This is what she does, is evaluate bone measurements and mm-hmm. so who, who was this person and how did they die and so forth. So Carl looks at the bones and she says, well, I think we need somebody else to do it too, just not me. And I know another forensic anthropologist who's even more famous than I am, that the University of Tennessee, Dr. Richard Jantz, who developed a computer program called 4DISC2 that's used by almost every medical examiner in the United States to assess a skull to tell uh, gender and ethnicity. So this is the guy we also want. So Carr and Richard Jantz both took on this thing independently and then compared results and completely agreed. Really? This, of course, we can't be sure because we don't have the actual bones. But based on these measurements, on modern anthropological forensic techniques, these appear to be the bones of a female of Northern European origin or descent, anyway, mm-hmm. who stood about mm, five foot seven, five foot eight. Ooh, now we have a pretty good description of Amelia Earhart. Wow. You know, wow. um, that's exactly who she was. Wow, we've got to get over to England and see the rest of that file. What else is in that WPHC file? We want to see uh, Gallagher's file, the, the guy who found him. Yeah, we know yeah. more about him. We need to know more about Dr. Hoodless. We need all this information. And it's all there. We know where it is now. But we just need to get over there and dig through those files and find out what... And are you allowed? No, you're not allowed. Oh. This is a highly secure facility. And we said, God, how are we going to get in there? So we start negotiating. And to make a long story short, they agreed that two American researchers could come 
with the understanding that we're going to have an escort every step of the way. Wow. If we go to the loo, we go to the bathroom, we have somebody with us. But we, we can go over and go to the archives. So another researcher and I, the, the researcher who, his name is Kent Spady, had done all the footwork finding these files oh, and so gosh. forth. And uh, had been corresponding with these people. He and I go to England in November of 1998, hmm. and we go to Hanslope Park. And we've got our little rental car, and we drive up, <laughs> and we present our passports and credentials. And they pat us down, and they put mirrors under the car, and, they do that, and there's razor wire everywhere. But <clears throat> they let us in, and they give us our escort, and every door you go through had to be swiped with a wow. special card. But we do get into the archive. We look at the finding aids. This is what you do in an archive. You look at the finding yeah. aids and you say, well, we need this box and we need this box and we need this box. And we fill out the little forms you fill out yeah. and we turn them into the desk. And the nice lady at the desk says, well, we'll get this box for you, the first box. It'll probably take uh, about 45 minutes for them to, to get that from where they're stored. And then once you're finished with that box, we can return it and then go to the next box. I said, wow. oh, God, we've got two days. <laughs> How long did you have? And we've got dozens of boxes we want to look at. <laughs> There's no way we're going to be able to get what we want here. But I knew from the correspondence that the woman in charge of the archive was Mrs. McPherson. Now, my name's Gillespie. Gillespies are traditionally associated with Clan McPherson in Scotland. Ah. And I took the precaution of wearing a Clan McPherson tartan tie. <laughs> and so when we ran up, up against this obstacle, I said, well, I'd, I'd like to speak with Mrs. McPherson if I could. And they said, well, okay, well, I'll get her. And Mrs. McPherson, nice elderly lady, you know, <laughs> looked like she could have been my aunt. You know, it, it, we all look alike. I said, uh, Mrs. McPherson, I wonder if I could ask a favor of you. And she says, aye, but I wonder if you know what tie that is you're wearing. I said, I, it's Clan McPherson. My name's Gillespie. So what is it you need, Mr. Gillespie? <laughs> and we had anything we wanted. We got whole big, uh, big tote box carts full of, full of <laughs> we, and we got to get through everything we wow. needed. And we came home with three hundred pages. Of, Could you just of, copy? Yeah, we, we went. Yeah. We had to pay for the copies, yeah, but, but we were happy to do that. And man, we were running stuff through that copy. Ah. I, I think at one point when we came back the second day, we had to go buy paper and bring oh. it back because <laughs> they weren't used to this kind of stuff. But yeah, we came back with all this material. Wow, and so it was, what did you find? That's well, geez, we got records of all the ships that belonged to the colonial 
service and what ships went where at which time. So now we can trace traffic between Tarawa and Fiji and Gardner right, Island. Yeah. We had Gallagher's file, we had his whole history and found out that when he first got to um, Nicomororo, he really didn't speak much Gilbertese at all. He hadn't done well on his tests or language tests. And so that makes a big difference about what he knew and what he had heard and who could have talked to him. All that stuff. Files on Dr. McPherson, the the doctor that had operated on Gallagher oh, in 1941. Right. Remember that yeah, whole story yes, about how died. Stan Brown held the lantern while McPherson yeah. worked on it. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that uh, Donald Campbell McEwen McPherson, always known as Jock, of course, <laughs> was really quite a big noise. I mean, he'd been born in a little village in the Western Highlands called Akarakala <laughs> and had been to university in Scotland and then in England and then got a grant and spent three years at Johns Hopkins in really? the U.S. and had traveled around the U.S. and then went out to the with the colonial service to Fiji. So he had a tremendous background hmm. and that was really good to know. All kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, wow. So now we have all this information we can start processing and preparing for our next expedition back to Nicomororo because now we know where to look. We want to look along that shoreline where the people in Funafuti told us they had seen airplane wreckage yeah. in the 1950s because mm -hmm. we had we had aerial photography that says yeah there was a light colored metal on that reflex wow. it was all coming together we finally knew where the airplane probably went into the water after being on the reef we know where to look for wreckage so let's 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 get geared up and get Niku 4 going and then we got some new information that made it apparent that we needed to do another black expedition. Really? So yeah. what? New information that's, oh my God, this is so good that we've got to check this out before we talk about it publicly. And where was this black expedition to? Were you going Nicomorra, back to Nicomorra? Going really? back to Nicomorra, ah. yeah. And now we thought, I think we know exactly where to look for the wreckage of that airplane. Wow. So we'll get into that in season five of the Art <laughs> Expeditions because there's so a lot to talk about there. Another pre-mission for another yeah. what turned out to be a preliminary mission, but uh, this was going to be a, a secret. Mission. Wow! Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll be excited to hear about that. We'll talk about it next time. Okay. Thank you, Rick. Yeah. Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.